Hello and welcome to the Decrypting Crypto Podcast. It's August 25th and this is Off Chain, your weekly recap of the biggest stories in Web3. I'm Matthew Howells Barbie and I'm here as always with Austin Knight. How are you doing, Austin? Doing well, Matt. We've had an entertaining week and I'm really pumped to share one very special update with you, but I'm saving that one for the end of the episode. <laughs> I'm excited. I mean, I'm both intrigued and, and excited, which I imagine all of our listeners will also be. Uh, we've got we've got a lot of stories to get through today. Um, one which uh, I'm really interested to dig into, I'm going to do in the first story where we're going to be talking a little bit about Bendow, which is uh, just this, on the cusp of, well, and currently experiencing some huge liquidations in the NFT space. Uh, so slightly different to what we've seen previously. Some news coming out of... Uh, Telegram. We're going to have a little look at some of the leaked numbers from FTX to see how they're performing. And then we'll kind of wrap things out with a little bit more around uh, a, a crypto lender kind of getting caught up in some issues. So we'll dive into all of that right after this. If you're struggling to get your head around the complexity of decentralized finance, I have something just for you. Decrypting DeFi is an online course where I walk you through all of the important concepts within DeFi and share step-by-step tutorials on how to start generating income from your crypto assets. Whether you're interested in this from an investment point of view or just want to better understand how things like yield farming, liquidity mining, and staking works, the course will have something for you. Head over to mhb.xyz forward slash DeFi to learn more. Bendow. You may have never heard of them before. You may have used them before, but the TLDR here is Bendow is a protocol that basically allows anyone to use NFTs as collateral to borrow ETH. Or, if you're on the supply side, deposit your ETH to earn yield. Now, a problem arose when on Monday, Bendow ran out of ETH. It's not a great situation to be in as a effectively a DeFi bank. Uh, so there was just 12.5 wrapped ETH left in their smart contract. And so what does this mean? Well, it means... Anyone who had lent money to other people via Bendow, so if you deposited your ETH for some yield, that yield is the interest that any uh, borrowers were paying. Um, so anyone who'd lent any uh, to any money to others uh, via Bendow to then like buy NFTs on leverage, which is what they they are they, they offer, they now can't pull their money out. That's not great when you think, okay, well, what's the scale of the situation? The scale of the situation is there's about 15,000 ETH that had been lent out on that platform. And yeah, there's a whole lot of creditors that now cannot pull their money out. Turns out this isn't just for centralized exchanges to to hold people ransom. Um, And there was a really great thread on Twitter. And I want to actually give a shout out here to um, the, uh, the the Twitter account Punk9059 because they did a great job of breaking down all the details that just gives a bit of background into the situation. And then we've had a few developments that have happened since. So 
what a what I would say as a summary is that you know, from uh, f- from all of this, NFT borrowers now they uh, because of the fact that the the funds have been pretty much drained in the the smart contract due to effectively bad protocol design. In all honesty, and we'll come into this in a moment. NFT borrowers are going to have to pay 100% interest on their borrowed ETH, and the debt against the NFTs locked up is now rising alarmingly quick. So what happens when NFTs are liquidated, so they have around about, uh, I think it's a 90% uh, liquidation threshold uh, right now, which works in the same way as if you're uh, putting down ETH as collateral and the ETH price drops to, to a certain liquidation threshold. What happens is they're put automatically on auction inside Bendow so that Bendow can recover their, the, the debt and use that to pay back debtors. Well, that's at least the plan. In this situation, and this was certainly the case as of Monday and in Bendow's existence up until then, um, they, they actually required bids above the debt that the borrower owes and also, it had to be above 95% of the OpenSea floor price. So for the NFT, it was pretty close to the OpenSea floor price, at least within a 5% range at best. Um, so when you think about this, you know, if for when they go up for auction, someone actually has to buy them. And the benefit of buying any liquidated assets is that you're buying them at a discount to the market uh, price. The price, like the arbitrage opportunity on that, I mean, it, considering a lot of these are very high value blue chip NFTs like Bored Apes and stuff like that, 5% discount on floor price is meaningful. However, like the, that, that gap was getting smaller and smaller. But on top of this, there are a few things that were built into Bendow's um, um, protocol mechanics that made this slightly less attractive. One of those was that uh, the all auctions lasted for 48 hours. So to open a bid, you also actually have to lock up your ETH for 48 hours as well. Debt is also sometimes actually higher than the floor price, and people don't want to actually pay more than if they could just buy the same, or well, not the same, but uh, an NFT from the same collection at the same level of rarity for a lower price on like OpenSea or whatever. Um, and, you know, like people don't want to have like 48 hours to risk the floor price moving, which often is the case. So in, in the situation, there, um, there's, there's obviously been a lot of liquidations happening inside Bendow because of the current situation. Board 8, Yacht Club, Mutant 8 Yacht Club, Doodles and the Clone X NFT, so all very like high-profile collections have been particularly impacted um, by, by the liquidations. But, um, you know, the, they aren't actually selling, which is a, is a big issue right now. And uh, so currently, those, those NFTs... Are are going into Bendow auctions and not actually really hitting the exchanges, and 
as a result of this, you know, it's because no one's bidding on them for some of the reasons I mentioned. So the DAO is just holding them right now. So they hold a load of these NFTs that have been liquidated, but, you know, they're non-liquids. They, they, at some point, the DAO needs this ETH from these NFT sales to pay lenders who can't actually withdraw their ETH. So reaching somewhat of a critical point, and a development happened on Tuesday where the Bendow founder um, proposed some pretty significant emergency changes to uh, to the protocol that actually these changes, if they were to pass governance, would could result in hundreds of liquidations of big blue chip NFTs like the ones I mentioned. So I looked through this proposal and what, what they had proposed was a few things. So first of all, re- reducing the liquidation threshold from 90% of the NFT value to 70%. So if we actually account for the interest accrued from now, uh, so so like now until then, you can assume, and there was a good uh, Twitter thread that broke this down in better detail than I can from Saras uh, NFT. You could assume that basically any of the NFTs that are listed, that are kind of locked up with a health rating of 1.39 um, in as collateral right now, will pretty much gradually be put up for auction by September 20th. And that is 600 NFTs. Uh, so a second piece of the proposal uh, involved changing the 48-hour ETH hold period for auctions, which which I just talked about, and change that to just four hours. Now, the, the, one of the reasons that they stated that why they had this 48-hour hold period was that you know someone couldn't just kind of fall asleep, they get liquidated, and the auction's gone, they wake up, and they've lost anything without being able to top up their collateral. It's now become kind of a critical state where actually they, they need to reduce this because they need to sell some of these liquidated NFTs. And also instead of, and I think this is probably the most significant for, for, the, for the reason why I found this story really important, is they, instead of having the minimum starting bid set to 95% of the OpenSea floor, um, it'll now be set to the total debt on that NFT, which actually means the that arbitrage opportunity, the, dis, uh, the, the gap between the floor price and the auction price will be much wider. So that could be like roughly like 20%. So you've got to imagine like if there's a board ape that's going up for a 20% discount on the OpenSea floor price, pretty attractive. I mean, you can pretty much immediately flip that uh, for, for a nice profit. And then finally, they'll also be adjusting the interest base rate to 20%. So this is a very big deal. This passing just simply the liquidation threshold being reduced down to 70% would liquidate a ton of NFTs straight away. The proposal passed yesterday. And you can actually view, there's a June uh, dashboard, which which we'll link to here, where you can basically see all of these live auctions that are that are happening. And what the outcome of all of this is, you can expect a ton of liquidations to hit the NFT space, which is just going to continuously put downward pressure on floor price across a lot of these blue chips, in particular, Bored Apes, Doodles, uh, Mutant Apes, uh, and Clone X. But there's a few others in there. I'm just actually hopping into the the June. Oh yeah, CryptoPunks, Azuki. Yeah. There's yeah. It, it, there's a lot. 
um, that's been tied up in this. So definitely a lot about to hit the market. Huge amounts. And uh, I I imagine there's a lot of people quite worried because 600 is, is, is quite a lot, especially when in the terms of like the NFT space. Um, and I imagine for a lot of people that are going to lose a lot of cash getting or lose very valuable assets at a massive discount, um, of those that got liquidated, it's probably going to be like a very significantly low entry point into this market, assuming there's some kind of recovery, uh, for, for people wanting to get their hands on a, a punk or a, a, a board ape, etc. So I imagine there's going to be some big winners in all of this, um, but but time will tell. But it's certainly going to shake things up, and is really not a great thing for an already struggling um, NFT market right now. So we'll have to see how that all plays out, Austin. Yeah, it's going to be wild. I I think I heard that we're looking at like over 600 liquidation auctions potentially. So definitely something to keep an eye on. And it's, I I also think there are probably some lessons in this, like the original, um, the original uh, LTV was somewhere around, you could get a loan of up to 40% of the NFTs floor price. And I saw one of the developers said, Hey, you know, we're sorry, we underestimated how illiquid NFTs could be in a bear market Mm. when we were setting all of this stuff up. And so definitely, I think that as NFTs go through, NFTs and NFT services go through this bear market, um, these types of scenarios bring a lot of learnings around, you know, the risk when volatility is introduced and things don't just keep going up and up and up and up. (laughs) Unfortunately, yeah. Unfortunately, that things don't just keep going up and up. Damn it. Uh, but yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. We'll keep tabs on this and uh, maybe we'll we'll take a little look back uh, next week or the week after and see kind of what impact this has had. I'm sure there's going to be a lot going on in this space. All right. On the topic of NFTs, let's jump into our second story of the day. Telegram is getting some attention because its CEO has proposed potentially allowing the auction of usernames and links as NFTs. Now, you may remember that previously Telegram was involved in uh, something called TUN or TUNCOIN. Um, and basically what this was is uh, a, a network that they had developed that has since kind of gone on to um, become a domain name service. Uh, but they had handed control over it to the open network community in June of 2020 because they had forfeit ownership of it as part of a settlement deal with the SEC, which had filed a complaint against Telegram for allegedly conducting an unregistered security sale for $1.7 billion uh, in the form of Gram tokens. So oh, I Telegram. That. Yeah. yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, Telegram no longer has control of this, but it's still pretty heavily involved in TUN, and it actually lets users send TUNCoin via chat. Well, TUN ended up getting the attention of Telegram's CEO recently when it netted roughly $3 million and selling over 2,000 .ton domains. And in fact, the highest grossing one, which is wallet.ton at 215,250 TUNCoin, uh, which is trading, I, last I checked this morning, it was around $1.47 uh, 
um, per ton. So uh, there's a bit of a, a one and a half multiplier on that 250,000 ton coin. That's a huge gross for a single sale of a single domain. But yeah, over $3 million netted in total. Obviously, this caught the attention of Pavel Durov, who is Telegram's CEO. And he said that he thinks the ton model could be extended to Telegram here. So Interesting. Yeah. I, I actually hadn't heard of... Uh... I, or maybe I can't remember. Maybe we've chatted about the ton stuff before. I definitely remember the whole gram situation. Uh, but yeah, I hadn't even heard of the the dot ton domains, uh, let alone like the um, the the big sale of the wallet dot tons. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it really is. And I I think that you know there's a component here of uh, Telegram, obviously you know sort of starting the project, having to forfeit it, and then now still being really involved in it, seeing how this is playing out and recognizing opportunity within the Telegram platform itself that could be so much larger than the ton domains. So that's exactly what Pavel Durov, the CEO, was talking about. He said, first, what if users on Telegram could sell their usernames? He said, quote, this would create a new platform where username holders could transfer them to interested parties in protected deals with ownership secured on the blockchain via NFT-like smart contracts. So that's the first. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure that that will really help with the uh, the the issues of scamming on on Telegram. That'll be great. At least oh. now, I de- <laughs> at least I definitely don't know who the hell the person is messaging me now, or whether they've just sold it their, their username to someone else. Excellent. Uh, great. Look forward to this. <laughs> Go ahead, Austin. <laughs> that's you know, Matt. I hadn't thought about that, but that is a really good point. They would have to put some type of you know, obvious badging or or notice of, of transfer in place, you know, verification issues, all kinds of stuff could be brought about by that. But I, I do think it is a really interesting concept, right? Like, again, having ownership over your username as it is a, a digital asset, sort of similar to like in the, the episode that you had several months ago where you were talking to Nat from... CryptoPunks about, um, you know, potential ownership of in-game assets and... Oh, cri- uh, uh, Crypto Raiders, yeah. Crypto Raiders, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Of um, in- in-game assets, you know, sort of uh, tying that back to in-game assets in games like Fortnite and all of the potential that's there. This really sort of reminded me of that. Mm. Uh, but beyond existing usernames, Pavel feels that there's opportunity for Telegram to sell off reserved usernames and links. So he said, quote, if Ton has been able to achieve these results, and he's referring to that $3 million uh, sale of over 2,000 domain names, imagine how successful Telegram with its 700 million users could be if we put reserved usernames, group, and channel links up for auction. So what he's talking about here is that uh, th- there are like four letter usernames that could be made available for sale, like at bank, at club, at game, at gift, etc. And then also catchy addresses like Storm, Royal, all of these things that have not been registered to a specific user yet. And thus, you know, wouldn't have that transfer issue that you were talking about, Matt, but yeah. are just kind of in the hands of Telegram right now could be made available. And then that the proceeds from those sales could go to Telegram as well. I imagine like the the pre-existing username sales, they probably take a cut of that transaction, but the majority of that would go to the person that registered the username. But for these usernames and links that haven't been registered yet because they've been protected and held by Telegram, the, all of the proceeds from that would go straight to Telegram, which could be a really cool way for the company to raise funds, right? Um, yeah. 
Also, he said this could eventually expand beyond that to other elements of the Telegram ecosystem, including channels, stickers, emoji, uh, that could later be incorporated into this marketplace. I don't know exactly what that would look like, but I mean, thoughts on this, Matt? Like, I think this is this could be really interesting as a way to give you know some digital asset ownership and um, you know s- sort of skin in the game to uh, users of Telegram. Uh, potentially, it could have some unintended consequences, sort of like what we see with domain squatting. You know, maybe you're going to get yeah. like username squatting, right? Oh, that yeah, that almost certainly happen. However, um, so so what this reminds me of a little bit is um, like Decentraland, actually. So Decentraland do a couple of things where I think there's a lot of parallels. So first of all, uh, you can um, you can have your own kind of customized username on. Uh, Decentraland versus just like a one that you can select, which has just like a, a hash at the end of it kind of thing with like a load of numbers, um, which is an NFT. And it gets similar to that, you know, they have like more desirable, rarer, like usernames that are like four letters, which uh, again, are, are also one of ones. Uh, so I, I, I noticed that. And, but the, one of the other big parallels and something that Decentraland have just rolled out recently or is about to roll out um, is emotes. So you can have your character do these like different like little dance moves or other different types of emotes. You think about like emotes as like a, an emoji for the metaverse. And they are they in themselves are NFTs as well. So you can own your character if it had a one of one emote only you uh, it's only your character in the entire decentraland that can do a certain like action or move uh inside the platform which gives it something very unique in the same way that if telegram did something with like stickers or emojis that were completely unique or very limited it's a flex or it could be for example, we start the the decrypting crypto Telegram channel, um, and you know everyone in there can use one of our decrypting crypto emojis, and they all own them uh, as as NFTs themselves. It's things like that that I do, I do think is interesting. And actually, you know, um, I think first of all, I think Telegram would be successful from a financial perspective. I would probably personally, and this is, I just want to clarify, this is definitely not any form of endorsement, but I would probably speculate on a few of these, which I did with things like the Ethereum name service when that first launched back in 2017, and that paid off really well. Um, This kind of thing, yeah, like domains people generally love, especially in the existing platforms. Will they use these for things that are actually really useful, like identity verification? I'm unsure, Um, but I do see some real use cases for that in being able to connect someone's wallet to obviously their their username and being able to verify identity that way. I'm interested to see how it shakes out. I'm I'm always just a little skeptical with Telegram overall because I just think there's so many things that they could do to make things safer that they just haven't. Um, but it'll be a uh, uh, I'm curious to see what their their play is here. I'm sure that the the three the the uh the three million was it three million dollars mm-hmm. that 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 uh that, that open network made from that is probably a a nice example for them of like market fit at least to making this work commercially yeah definitely an exciting one to watch and interesting food for thought what if other platforms followed suit like could you imagine if twitter did something like this of course mm. plenty of 
problems and opportunities. But we know that just like how Nat was talking about how Fortnite assets are traded, you know, off platform and subreddits <laughs> and corners yeah. of the web. So too our Twitter usernames, even if that's against the terms of service. I'm and sure Reddit. that folks at Twitter, yeah, Reddit as well. Um, I'm sure that folks working on these platforms have thought through this many, many, many times over. With Telegram leading the way, maybe it sets a bit of a precedent. So definitely something to think through. But up next, we've got some more news about our, our favorite crypto hero, SBF and FTX. Financials leaked from the popular crypto exchange led by now almost uh, biblical figurehead uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, FTX, showed that they grew revenue 1,000% during the bull market of last year. That sounds like a nice amount of percent to me, Austin. Uh, would you like 1,000% more money, Austin? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds pretty compelling to me. Um, that's great. Uh, well, what, what we saw from the, and I was, I was taking a little look through some of these financials. So um, FDX took revenue from below $90 million in 2020, which, which I actually just want to like pause for a moment on. In 2020, FDX only generated $90 million of revenue. That is like, okay, like, in absolute terms, $90 million is, is a lot of money. In this respect, it's peanuts, right? Like they, they can't run a major crypto exchange and be making that much money. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that in 2020, they, they had their logo on Lewis Hamilton's F1 car. I definitely <laughs> thought they were making a lot more than $90 million. <laughs> I'll tell you something, Mercedes were making a lot of money from them, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, but, you know, so um, from $90 million in 2020 to more than $1 billion dollars in 2021 what an enormous growth uh uh growth kind of that is and um here's here's something that i think is probably the most interesting stat about all of this their u.s business accounted for less than five percent of revenue which which i think is 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 not what a lot of people would would actually think um now i want to give like I'll give some comparisons here to that Coinbase and Co in a moment, but just just kind of like digging this uh, a little bit further down because I think revenue can somewhat be a little bit misleading, especially for a fee-driven business. So when we like take a little look at like operating income, which I think is a much better representative view of income, um, in 2020 that was 14 million. And remember that revenue was 90. Well, in 2021 that was 272 million from 1 billion. So still very very healthy. So um, in in Q1 of 2022 they made 270 million in in revenue alone just in that one single quarter, which is a is a huge amount for them. That would signify kind of that was a good quarter for them overall, especially as that was getting to the tail end of the bull market. Um, their margins were enormous. 27% uh, profit margin, which in itself was really good last year. However, when you, <laughs> funnily enough, when you exclude some of those advertising expenses like uh, uh, Lewis Hamilton's beautifully colorful F1 helmet and, I mean, several major, major 
um, advertising deals, that profit margin rises close to 50% mark. That is a pretty wonderful business. Um, what I thought was even more impressive on top of this, when you look at their balance sheet at the end of 2021, they had $2.5 billion in cash. Now we kind of understand why and how FTX has been bailing out half of the crypto space. Um, so that's been kind of interesting. You know, based on their last uh, funding round, they're obviously still a private company, they were valued at $32 billion. So let's just take a little step back from that. That's really impressive. The growth story of FTX, I think, is um, is looking a lot like the the Binance growth story of 2017. You know, Binance launched in 2017, and within two years, I believe it was, became the largest crypto exchange in the world. It's unbelievable growth, and continue to have maintained it. I think FTX is uh, still a long way away from being that, but that kind of growth is similar pattern to what Binance saw in their early days, and I'm sure they have ambitions to be as big as. Um, so taking a little look at comparison, so let's ground this with some uh, some Coinbase numbers. So Coinbase generated $7.4 billion in revenue, and $3.6 billion of that was uh, kind of net like operating income in 2021. However, in, in Q2 of 2022, and FTX, we don't know how much FTX made in Q2 of 2022, and it's worth noting that is when we saw the, the beginnings of the crypto crash. It reported $808 million in revenue, which was a decline of 64% year over year and a net loss of $1.1 billion, um, whereas they'd actually made $1.5 billion in net income in that same Q2 of 2021. Um, interestingly, though, you know, when you look at the sources of income comparison, Coinbase the majority of their revenue comes from the US. And FTX, we've been talking about them a lot. I think they get a lot of plaudits. They've also been expanding into um, securities and uh, offering stock, uh, regular like equities through their platform. I think, Austin, that this time next year, we are going to be discussing how FTX have completely passed Coinbase and are becoming a real challenger to being a top three exchange. Um, I think we're going to be talking about them in the same light as the crypto.com, Binance's of the world. Um, and it's, uh, I think it's really impressive, I have to say. And we'll, we'll see how it all plays out. But pretty great growth so far. Uh, you can't really complain with that, right? Yeah, it really is something else. I was also thinking it'd be interesting to kind of break down the operating income and revenue by employee as well, because I think that prior to the layoffs, Coinbase had like over 6,000 employees. And I think yep. the largest number I've seen from FTX was 600. Um, and I don't even know if if they're still at that number uh, through some like natural attrition that they've had. And yep. I remember SBF saying like explicitly, we have chosen to not grow our headcount. And that is part of what has enabled us to have such a healthy balance sheet and like bail out the entire crypto industry. Um, obviously, you know, very different strategies. It sort of reminds me of that whole famous thing with WhatsApp being like 19 employees when it was acquired by Meta. Um, so, yeah, it, I, I, I think I agree with you, Matt, like definitely a place to keep our eye on. Yeah. 
Well, we'll uh, no doubt be talking about SBF and FTX over the next uh, few weeks, so we'll keep you all updated. And uh, without uh, further ado, let's jump into our final story of the day. Hodel not. It's a crypto lender. Uh, it's based out of Singapore, and it has announced a police inquiry, and it's cut 80% of its staff. So rough times. Um, if you're not familiar with what Hodel not is going through, they have applied to be under something called judicial management as of last week. This is a legal process in Singapore, uh, which again is where Hodel not is based. Uh, basically, it's a method of debt restructuring where an independent judicial manager is going to be appointed to manage the affairs, business, and property of Holdelnot, uh, which is considered a company that's under financial distress right now. The reason for that is that they, according to them, experienced significant losses from the Terra USD crash, a high volume of withdrawals following that. Obviously, we're dealing with a general crypto bear market. And then they also kind of alluded to having some issues with a, a couple whales that had deposited huge amounts of money into their platform. Wasn't totally clear to me what's going on there. But basically, through this judicial management process, they are going to be temporarily shielded from legal proceedings by third parties. And that should hopefully give them the opportunity to rehabilitate. The benefit here would be that they can avoid liquidation of their holdings in Bitcoin and ETH at today's prices, which of course are you know way depressed from when those holdings were acquired. And it should hopefully give them the opportunity to execute the re recovery plan. But as part of this, on August 8th, they froze all of their withdrawals, deposits, and token swaps on the platform. And in their statement that, that they released, they said, quote, this, this difficult decision was taken for us to focus on stabilizing our liquidity and preserving assets while we work to find the best way to protect our users' long-term interests. But I think, you know, Matt, we've come pretty used to uh, platforms freezing withdrawals, deposits, and, and token swaps, especially in the, the wake of Terra. And typically what follows that is, you know, some form of restructuring or bankruptcy or, you know, huge losses experienced um, on the platform, right? Hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it. We've continuously through episode after episode when we've covered these kind of situations, uh, seen that users' funds have been frozen, and then you know, there's there's rarely ever good news that kind of comes after that, right? Yeah. And so as part of this latest update, Hodelnot shared two additional developments, one of which is that they're cutting 80% of their staff, which is roughly 40 people, to reduce their expenditures. And they said that the remaining staff are just absolutely critical to keep the lights on. Uh, the other piece, which is a little disconcerting, is that they said that they're fielding pending proceedings with the Singapore Attorney General and the Singapore police force. But this wasn't something that they like directly addressed in the statement. It was like buried in an FAQ. <laughs> I mean, well- It's reassuring. We'll, yeah, yeah. We'll link to the statement um, and, and you can see it yourself. It's like all the way down there in this FAQ. Um, they didn't like directly address it or share any details. It, honestly, it was kind of cryptic. But what they did say is, quote, these actions are taken in what we believe to be in the best interests of our users. So I think that's kind of something to keep an eye on with, especially if you have any capital or assets tied up in Hodel Knot. Um, not totally clear what's going on there, but obviously they're in some rocky waters. And 
Another thing that Matt that I think is interesting about this is just how Singapore has kind of found itself at the center of the crypto lending crisis. <laughs> yeah. um, if you'll it recall, really yeah, back in uh, on July twenty second, uh, Zipmex, which is a cryptocurrency exchange, filed for bankruptcy protection in Singapore to avoid legal action from creditors after they froze withdrawals. So uh, again, repeating the sort of common theme that we're seeing here. And then, of course, I mean, we've talked so much about Three Arrows Capital, the, the crypto hedge fund that is now insolvent. Uh, and Singapore's regulators are, are chasing after them on multiple fronts, w- one of which the the MAS is uh, going after them for providing false information and exceeding their assets under management threshold, which is allowed for a registered fund management company in Singapore. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, Singapore and its regulatory bodies are finding itself, you know, dealing with, I mean, they're they're sort of, you know, uh, they're not new kids on the block when it comes to banking and, you know, dealing with like light regulation and and everything like that. Right. Um, But uh, definitely it'll be interesting to see what happens with Hodelnot as they go through this, you know, kind of novel judicial management process uh, and of course face layoffs and potential investigations definitely right we'll keep uh we'll keep tabs on that all right should we jump into our to our wrap-up i've been eagerly awaiting what this the this 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 wrap-up is going to contain i'm i'm excited austin i hope it's (laughs) not going to disappoint uh so let's let's jump right in all right before my favorite story and our last story i do want to mention mercado libre has introduced its own Ethereum cashback token. Now, if you're not familiar with Mercado Libre, it's Latin America's biggest online marketplace. You could think of this as like an Amazon or an eBay of LatAm. When I was living in Brazil and traveling around Latin America, I used it all the time. I bought and sold things on there. It's a fantastic platform. And it's really, I mean, like, you can't overstate how huge this thing is in Latin America. Um, they also have like millions of dollars in Bitcoin on their balance sheet. So they have been uh, involved in the crypto space for some time. But this is kind of a landmark achievement for them because they've launched something that they're calling Mercado Coin in Brazil. It's an ERC-20 token. Uh, and it's going to allow users to earn cash back with it. So basically, they're building upon what is kind of an already robust loyalty and rewards program that they have on the platform by introducing Mercado Coin. You're going to be able to use it to buy things on the marketplace or trade it via their fintech arm, which is called Mercado Pago. Uh, it's basically like a bank that they've built within the platform. You know, may- maybe you could liken it to to like their version of a PayPal, uh, the PayPal and eBay relationship. Um, but Mercado Coin has initially been valued at $0.10 cents, uh, per coin. It's subject to market fluctuations, of course. Um, so interesting to see such a huge platform in LATAM entering into the uh, Ethereum cashback token space. Yeah, I'm interested to, to keep tabs on that. I'm trying to like figure out the, the why behind it. Uh, I'm assuming it's going to be probably a combo largely centered around uh, them combating inflation, accruing value in the token and not being subjected to a very, very strong dollar right now and a weakening uh, local currency. So, 
it's an interesting move. We'll see how it goes. I'm sure that if the token value pumps, users will be very happy. And then when it inevitably crashes, people will be distraught. So I'm sure we'll be covering <laughs> that in the future. Uh... <laughs> Some serious foreshadowing coming from across the pond. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm feeling a little bit... Uh, more skeptical today, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And for our favorite story of the day, Portugal news. Yes. How, how, how long back. have we gone <laughs> without yes. news about Portugal? It's been the worst. You, Everybody's talking about a crypto win winter. I'm sitting here in a Portugal news winter. <laughs> Austin, I have a calendar in front of me right now, and it has 10 big crosses. It's marked out on it. I went mean, 10 weeks for you to come back to me with Portugal news. I've been wondering, does Portugal even exist anymore at this point? So I know. I'm, I'm yeah. eager. I'm eager to know what is happening in Portugal. Are there still people there? Is it inhabited? Is it just a barren <laughs> landscape of Ethereum miners and that's it? Like, where, what's going on? Well, uh, we have long been covering the, the sort of shifting landscape of crypto adoption and regulation and favorability in Portugal. Of course, classically, it's been a very favorable destination for crypto owners, traders, uh, platforms to be based out of. And over the course of the past several months, we saw a lot of moves in regulation from the Portuguese government to start taxing crypto and, and all of this stuff that maybe would make it a little bit less favorable of a place to be based out of. And what's interesting is that outside of the legal system now, banks, independent commercial banks in Portugal are starting to shut down the accounts of crypto exchanges. So wow. at least three separate exchanges have had their accounts shut down despite actually obtaining regulatory approval to operate within the country. So hmm. yeah, I know, wild, right? Um, I mean, why could this potentially be happening, Matt? What are the... What are the possible reasons why banks might be shutting down crypto exchange accounts? Mm. Um, so the, Could it be something to do with those crypto exchanges making a lot of money and banks not seeing it? Is that maybe it? Or <laughs> is it that they're taking their, the bank's money laundering clients and they're really annoyed about that? Uh, maybe that's the issue here. You know, I think save, you might be onto something. <laughs> save some of that criminal activity towards you greedy exchanges. That's what I imagine is happening here. <laughs> Yeah, I think you're right on the money there, Matt. So the, the reasons that have been cited, and admittedly, the banks haven't been very vocal about this or willing to comment on it, but they have said that there's fear of potential money laundering and other criminal activity. And uh, so, yeah, this has been happening semi-regularly throughout the past year, just banks shutting down the accounts of crypto exchanges. And in fact, Portugal's largest bank, which is Banco Comercial Português and Banco Santander, closed the Portuguese crypto exchange Crypto Lojas accounts. Um, so their exchange is no longer allowed to hold any capital within uh, those banks. And actually earlier this year, the crypto exchanges mined the coin and Luso Digital assets also had their accounts closed by Portuguese banks. And in fact, Lu this is just like classic. Luso wasn't given any reason from the banks as to why their accounts were closed. That's, uh, <laughs> I mean, that sounds par for the course uh, at this point. It's just... Yeah. That must have been a crazy time uh, for, for, like, what do you do? You've got huge amount of assets that are now going to be, I mean, at minimum, temporarily frozen. These are 
a combination of user funds. These are probably populating order books. Like what? Like what happens here? It's a, the, the, I can't imagine how stressful that would be for those those companies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, from what I read, they're basically banking on some new crypto legislation to go through at the EU level that would allow them to have accounts based outside of Portugal, actually. Um, but in mm. terms of Portuguese law, here's how it's all set up. Basically, Portuguese banks are regulated by the central Portuguese bank, the, bank, the Banco de Portugal. Uh, so these, this central bank actually grants licenses to various cryptocurrency companies that are operating in the country. And all of these exchanges had the, the proper licensing. However, commercially independent banks, like the ones that we've mentioned here, they are at their own discretion as to whether they allow these companies to hold accounts in their banks. And they can actually terminate them whenever they choose. So it looks like what's happening here is that banks would prefer to work with companies that may not raise concerns over money laundering, or if you're cynical, encroach on their money laundering business. <laughs> um, it's big or, business. You know, yeah, <laughs> it is something. Um, but or you know potentially deal with tax evasion and things like that. And there was actually this quote that I saw from an, an attorney in Portugal that is specializing in this, and he said, "It seems that banks do not trust their own regulators' judgment on issuing such authorizations to operate. So it's a mixture of banks being slow moving, unprepared, afraid of money laundering, and preferring other low hanging fruits in other sectors." So. Interesting situation in Portugal. Obviously, it's been a bit tumultuous over the course of the past year. And this just kind of adds to it a, a bit of an un, unclear environment when it comes to, you know, banks uh, dealing with assets and funds that are brought into their system from crypto exchanges and crypto sources. What a what a U-turn. I mean, it just must be, you know, when Portugal had been marketing itself as like the the crypto web three hub of not just Europe, but trying to position it like that as the world making friendly uh, regulation. And it just feels like it's been a reversal and whole businesses have built infrastructure uh, uh, around it. Uh, like this is a, this is a monumental rug pull, I think from, from Portugal on a, on a load of those uh, exchanges. So we'll have to, We'll have to see how things shake out. What I'm most happy about, even though it was bad news, I would say, is I'm just glad to be hearing about Portugal again, Austin. This is what <laughs> I want. And, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully we'll have another one of those next week. But until then, it's been a pleasure, Austin, and I will see you next week. Ciao. Contents of the Decrypting Crypto podcast should not be used and are not intended as investment advice. Please do your own due diligence before making any investment, cryptocurrency or otherwise.